CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind here on GPB Radio. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very glad that you are joining us for our uh, show today. Um, I want to get right to the panel because we have an awful lot to talk about today, including what happened in the first day of uh, efforts to select a jury uh, in the Arbery trial, some interesting news about uh, redistricting, which is going to get started in less than a month down at the state capital and ways in which uh, some incumbents may be thrown together in uh, one uh, in, in a single district and therefore have to compete against one another. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about Marjorie Taylor Greene at some point today. We really haven't mentioned her for quite a long time, but we'll do it today. Uh, joining us, as she does on every Tuesday, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tamar. Thanks for being here. Hey, Bill. Excited to dive in. Yeah, yeah. Is it cold uh, over uh, your part of town? Because it's freezing in our house this morning. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty cold-natured, <laughs> and I live in this 100-year-old building with a single-pane glass, so I am frigid for about six months of the year. <laughs> we'll try to get you warmed up during our discussion uh, today. Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for the uh, GPB News, is with us as well. Riley, you spent a few days down in Brunswick and are going to head back there at some point covering the Ahmad Arbery trial. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing good. I you know how long driving. So apologies if I'm not formulating the best sentences this morning, but you know, it's it's pretty incredible to be down there right now. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. Um we're joined again today by East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram. We're always glad to have you on the show, Mayor. Thanks for being here. Uh, I mentioned right before we went on the air when we were talking, uh, you had some street racing going on in your community over the weekend. It got a good amount of news because there was video of the, um, I guess, a joint task force, Atlanta police and state police, cracking down on these guys who were in a parking lot uh, doing uh, uh, lots of stuff they shouldn't be. Right, Mayor? Yes, thanks for having me this morning. You know, working together in a coordinated approach, I'm hoping that message was sent. Don't come back to East Point with that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being here. We're also joined by Eric Tannenblatt. Uh, Eric, of course, a longtime activist in Republican Party politics going all the way back to when he worked for Paul Coverdale, when Paul Coverdale was a legislator, worked with Paul Coverdale in the United States Senate, was Sonny Perdue's chief of staff for the first term that uh, uh, Sonny served in the governor's office, worked with George H.W., George W., Jeb Bush, as uh, they all pursued, and in two cases, won the White House and uh, Eric now, of course, is the head. I always get the title specifically wrong, Eric, but the way I describe it is you're the head of global government relations for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Is that close enough? That's close enough. And it's a delight to be with you this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, being here today. Um, uh, let's start tomorrow by talking a little bit about what happened down at the state capitol yesterday. We have all in the media uh, covered 
the news about the uh, breakaway movement going on in Buckhead. They, Bill White, the guy who's leading that effort, and others have been getting a lot of attention uh, for their side of the story. Um, yesterday, we had a news conference that was um, hosted essentially by the, the legislators, Democratic legislators, who actually represent parts of the city of Atlanta. There are no legislators who represent any part of the city of Atlanta who were involved in the effort to get a referendum going to separate Buckhead from uh, the city of Atlanta. Tamar? Yeah, the opening salvo of what I'm sure will be a loud, passionate, drawn-out fight over this, especially as the legislature comes back in in um, in January. So you had a press conference with uh, Betsy Holland, Jen Jordan, Sonia Halpern, and Nan Orak. Um, you know, to to kind of fight this and talk about how no one in the local delegation wants it and the dangerous precedent that could be set if this effort succeeds and kind of warning legislators that if you do this to us, this could happen to you. And there could be a lot of unintended consequences from all of this, because traditionally you want to get the local delegation on board before you were to do something like that. But because the of the passions of the moment because we're so politicized. Um, a lot of that is starting to change. Uh, you see that that process having broken down in Washington um, during the Trump years with the blue slip process, which is uh, kind of the process to confirm local judges in each state and district. And you used to want to have the party buy-in, or I'm sorry, the, the local delegation buy-in for that. That process has broken down. It's clearly breaking down here in Georgia in the legislature as well. Um, this is, in many ways, a Republican versus Democratic uh, uh, issue. Um, the uh, leaders of the movement are, are suburban Republicans, uh, primarily in the legislature. Legislature, But uh, uh, Nan Orrick, who is never at a loss for words, uh, yesterday had some strong comments uh, in which she said, don't count on all Republicans supporting this effort. She said, all of these legislators, regardless of party, understand the realities back in their districts. They wouldn't want this bulldozer coming at them in their communities. Uh, Mayor Ingram, you know, um, one of the reasons that we don't uh, talk about this as much as we do a lot of other political issues is that we're a statewide show. And we want to make sure that we're talking about issues that the entire uh, state has a stake in. I would argue, and I'd love for your thoughts on this, that the entire state has a big stake in this fight over Buckhead. Tell me what you think about that. I absolutely agree. It's reminiscent of the Eagles Landing fight, right? That was not too long ago. And um, as a board member of Georgia Municipal Association now and um, active then, the GMA actually took a position to stand with um, Stockbridge, because annexation for it could be stock the name Stockbridge today, it could be East Point or any other city across the state um, tomorrow. And so this is absolutely a statewide issue. This is absolutely a, a city issue. And, you know, really it's about making sure that we are able to protect um, the, the jurisdiction that we have and that we're able to make sure that you know, we, we don't have these spinoffs for either political reasons, for, you know, a number of other reasons that could also just be discriminatory type reasons, right? Like when you look at the, the desire to break off by Eagles Landing from Stockbridge, the implications of that um, were, I mean, astronomical. 
And so, yes, it is an issue for all of Georgia's, I think it's 537 cities. And so that is why um, whenever there's a discussion around de-annexation um, and forming new cities, um, there's a statewide response and Georgia Municipal Association, again, has been there because there are a lot of implications of that. There's a lot of investment that cities have made in these areas that want to break off and then how that impacts you know, the cities financially or just from a resource perspective. Um, and so there are a number of things that have to be considered. It is absolutely a statewide issue. Eric, um, you've been involved in Buckhead uh, issues for a long time. You're, the, you're going to be the next chair, I think about a year or so from now, of the Buckhead Coalition. One of the concerns, and, and you're, you don't want uh, to see a city of Buckhead uh, created, um, one of the concerns that is raised all the time is how much revenue would be taken away from the city of Atlanta if Buckhead became a separate city. And that leads to the question about whether the city of Atlanta could be in some financial jeopardy and the state would have to step in and make up for the loss of revenue that uh, that Atlanta could face and not be able to uh, offer the services that it does right now. Yes, you're 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 absolutely right. And, and first, I should say, I understand why there's this outcry in Buckhead to want, you know, uh, of their own city. I mean, the increase in violent crime, which I would say is is all over the city of Atlanta, and some would say it's you know all over the state. There's been an increase, but we have had poor leadership uh, at the city level, and not just increase in violent crime, but poor city services. So I understand why people in the community feel the way they do. However, the ramifications of doing something like de-annexing a portion of the city. This is not like Sandy Springs or Brookhaven or Johns Creek or any of these other cities that were formed out of unincorporated portions of a county. This is de-annexing a portion of the city. And I'm glad the mayor mentioned um, uh, uh, Eagles Landing because that was one that was similar, although that's not the same size you know, as the city, uh, city of Atlanta. And I know the legislators yesterday were all Democrats and were trying to turn this into a partisan issue, but there's a lot of Republicans, including this one, that are opposed to Buckhead cityhood. And there's an organization that's being led by, you know, my, my partner and a regular on this show, Ed Lindsay, who used to be a state legislator uh, from Buckhead, representing Buckhead, who's leading an effort along with Linda Klein called the Committee for United Atlanta. The ramifications of this uh, your listeners all across the state need to pay attention to this because it could be devastating to the state. You know, we take a lot of pride, both Democratic and Republican governors, on the fact that we have a AAA bond rating. Uh, we're one of a few states that have been able to maintain that for decades. Well, if you take to your point, Bill, city of Atlanta, and you separate out Buckhead, the financial ramifications uh, can be devastating and it could impact all it takes is a big city. It could impact the, you know, financial stability of the entire state, uh, not to mention what it would do for the school children at APF. And one other point, and, and I could, I could talk about this for hours, as you could probably tell, but, you know, the violent crime issue is a serious issue. But creating a city of Buckhead is not going to solve that because until you deal with the issue of the backlog of the court of the cases at Fulton County. And whether you have 16 municipalities or 17 municipalities in Fulton County, it's still going through the Fulton County court system. 
So I'm hopeful that the legislature addresses uh, the crime issue, not just in Atlanta, but across the state. I think they will, because I think people in Buckhead need to, you know, see that our lawmakers are doing something. But I would just say to all people in Buckhead that are concerned about uh, the issues in the city, you have an opportunity to speak up. And that's this November when we have an election, when we're going to elect a new mayor and a new city council. And just one last factoid that I think is important for people to know is that in the last two municipal elections, when Atlanta elected a new mayor, the turnout, the voter turnout in Buckhead was only 40 percent. So if people in Buckhead are concerned that they're not getting proper leadership to address the issues in Buckhead, then go vote November 2nd and let your voice be heard. Okay. Um, I, 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 I want to come back to that in a couple minutes, but Riley... Um, you know, um, Eric just talked about how Democrats yesterday were uh, the ones who talked about why they don't want to see Buckhead become an independent city. But it has been Republicans who have been promoting this notion uh, since it began, really. And we're still, Riley, waiting to hear what uh, Governor Kemp uh, might have to say uh, about this. And, and here's one of the qu- concerns and questions that I wanted to pose to you. Um, there is no question that for Republicans seeking re-election, like Governor Kemp, they are making crime in Metro Atlanta a, a central issue in their campaign. The governor's already talked about putting more state resources into fighting crime in the city of Atlanta. And the question becomes, can you separate the Republican effort to make crime a premier issue from those who say crime is the reason that Buckhead should become a separate city. Can you, can you separate those so that you don't have everyone uh, uh, looking to create the city of Buckhead and deal with crime at the same time, if that makes sense? Well, I mean, in an election season, it's going to be really hard to separate the two, right? Because the, the rise in violent crime is the main driver behind this Buckhead City movement. And we did talk, you know, Democrats were the ones yesterday that were saying, hey, be careful because local control until local control doesn't exist anymore, right? Um, But we also have, they say that there are Republicans, Eric is a testament, there are Republicans that are against it, but how loud are the Republican voices that are against it, right? We have candidates that are seeking re-election, that have this platform, have this money, that are not from Atlanta, not from the areas that are pushing this movement. Um, and I think for them to have a successful you know, campaign election, it, it would be hard and maybe not the best route for them to separate crime from the city of Buckhead movement. I think subtlety often I think subtlety often gets lost in politics. So even if these politicians think that they're walking this really fine line, I think in the eyes of a lot of voters who maybe are not paying as close attention to all these statements, um, it's impossible to separate the issue. Uh, this is such a juicy target politically for Republicans, especially if you're kind of trying to go for that Trump base. Um, Brian Kemp has, Uh, gone after Mayor Bottoms a lot. And I think that's really helped him win win over a base that's been very skeptical of him ever since the the 2020 election. So I'm um, I'm curious to see where it goes. I also wonder if Donald Trump could maybe get involved in this fight. It's super local, but at the same time, Burt Jones, a man who he's um, endorsed for lieutenant governor, has has started to wade into it. And I could see this being something that that Donald Trump would, would want to talk about. Um, I'd be, 
Let's step away from just the partisan politics again for a second and talk about another issue, uh, Riley, that that is important to all of this. And that's what happens to the Atlanta public schools. Um, The Democrats who held the news conference yesterday talked about this. Um, APS, those schools in Buckhead that are part of the Atlanta public school system remain APS schools, whether Buckhead is a separate city or not. And the, the critics of this movement are saying, where will the kids in Buckhead go to school if they're no longer paying, their, their families are no longer paying taxes for the schools, if they're no longer able to go to the, I mean, education becomes a huge issue that I personally haven't heard addressed by those who want to break away in a particularly uh, specific way. Well, I mean, it's, it's all about these really low, not low level, but things that aren't seen logistical issues now, right? Logistical issues in terms of tax, logistical issues in terms of school systems. Um, And I think, you know, uh, the school system might be another good sticking point for an argument for people who are against it because school systems have been so upended um, in the last year because of COVID and things like that, um, that that might be a good argument to stick with is, right, that where are these kids going to go? How are they going to get their education if this happens? Hey, All Bill, right. can I um, jump in on this? Can yeah. I jump in on that point? Sure, real quick. I, I think, it is, yeah, real I think quick. it is really important. The state constitution doesn't allow you to form a new school system. APS, right. who has not heard from the Buckhead uh, cityhood folks, have, have said that those students are not going to go to APS schools, which means they're going to have to go to Fulton County schools, which means you're going to need more teachers, more facilities, and that's very expensive. And just one last point, too, on the politics of this, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you mentioned earlier, she's endorsed Buckhead Cityhood. And I think when people start hearing that, you know, politics, I'm I'm not sure they're going to be in agreement with that. Yeah. (laughs) I think we know where Eric Tannenblatt stands on this issue. But just one last word about this before we move on. Mayor Ingram, I was struck by the fact that – Nan Orak, who I mentioned a minute ago, been, who has been the leader of the uh, Atlanta delegation at the state capitol, um, said this about uh, Bill White, the guy who's leading up the effort. <laughs> she said, quote, Bill White, some guy who moved here two years ago. I don't know why he isn't in New York dividing that up. Bill White's response uh, was he said the news conference was hyperbolic drivel and scaremongering. So, Mayor Ingram, this up. Big, big fight, and it's going to get nastier as time goes by. Yeah, and I think, you know, of course, the sensationalism of, you know, the scare tactic, using words that sound, you know, scary, um, is always kind of like the retort to people who are making, you know, really sound arguments around the fact that, I mean, I guess hers was Johnny come lately, right? Like you haven't been here long enough to really get a sense of what the implications are. And I think that speaks to really thinking through what this means. Crime is not only happening in Buckhead, it's happening in other areas of the city of Atlanta as well. You know, if we really wanted to think about it, we'll be talking about Lamar Arbery shortly. Like, who are the victims in Buckhead? What are the races of victims in Buckhead? What is the amount of money that is being able to be amassed in Buckhead around this movement? And so either we care about crime holistically and really trying to deal with crime throughout the city. Um, crime is down in the city of East Point by 12% across the board, including violent crimes. But even though we care about that, 
but don't use these scare tactics and these things to say, you know, we want to start another city because there's a lot of crime happening here. There's crime happening everywhere. What is a holistic solution to address that? And it is not just because it's Buckhead, right? The reality is it's the victims, the color of the victims in Buckhead creates another level of people mobilizing around, you know, the majority of the victims are white. But what about just being concerned about safety of all people, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of national origin, who you love, any of those things, right? Like making sure that we are addressing it from a perspective that every single resident, every single person in this city, this state, this country has a right to be safe. And that's why we have police departments to ensure that we're doing things to help make sure everyone is safe. So I think it is, you know, very... um misleading to tie crime as the basis for, you know, wanting to de-annex. There are a number of implications. I think it makes people scared, right? And it, it helps, you know, maybe galvanize more people around it because, oh, yes, we'll be safer if we're our own city. Not true. All right. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break uh, before we move forward and talk a bit about what happened on the first day of jury selection in the Ahmad Arbery case. I, I do want to say before we do that, though, um, I don't think there's any question that the Buckhead Cityhood movement is picking up momentum. And every time there's a big crime, every time we see more news about shootings in, in Buckhead itself, even though, as, as Mayor Ingram just pointed out, we, we see crimes, gun crimes, particularly gun violence all over uh, the state of Georgia, I think it adds fuel to the fire. So I think before we take this break, we should point out that while nobody on this panel is enthusiastic about the notion of a separate city, there is no question that there's a lot of momentum behind the movement, and we will be watching it closely in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Uh, Let's get to our first break of the show and be back with more on Political Rewind. East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Eric Tannenblatt, Republican Insider, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and GPB's Riley Bunch uh, join us for today's show. Um, Tamar, uh, they did begin jury selection yesterday afternoon. Uh, some 600 people are in this initial pool of people who could be queried about whether or not they should be serving on this jury, depending on how they answer the questions that the judge has approved for all of the lawyers to ask. Um, There's as many as a thousand who could also be involved in this if it gets more complicated. And it appears, Tamar, that it is going to get complicated. Just to read from the lead of uh, the piece that ran in the AJC about this, Uh, this morning. Uh, Here it is. Asked if anyone had negative feelings about the three men facing murder charges in Ahmaud Arbery's shooting death, about a dozen of the first 20 prospective jurors brought into the courtroom raised their hands. The display showed how difficult it could be to seat a jury in a case that has received worldwide attention. I think Mr. Arbery was probably in terror, said one prospective juror. I'm trying to be honest here. Tamar, this could be uh, just uh, how you find uh, neutral parties in this is really, really the big question. Especially in this day and age where we have a 24-hour news cycle, social media, where passions run high constantly in a case that 
as my colleagues mentioned, has made worldwide headlines. It's impossible, I would think, to find someone who doesn't know the story of Ahmad Arbery and doesn't have strong feelings about what it means in terms of race in America, in terms of guns and stand your ground laws. It's going to be really hard. And I think um, you know, it may be impossible to find jurors who who don't know the details of the case, what they might uh, have to hang their hat on or just people who are open minded to hearing uh, what's, you know, the argument of the McMichael side. That might be the best that um, the defense can hope for. Eric? Yeah, I, I would agree with Tamar. And I think that's why they're looking at 600 people or maybe a thousand people. I think they're going to have to go through um, a lot of uh, interviewing of, of potential jurors to find people just because this has been all over the place. And I think people uh, have strong views. Um, but, you know, maybe with a thousand people, they can find uh, a, a number of impartial uh, jurors. Things can be tough. Um, so, um, Mayor Ingram, uh, Judge Wamsley, uh, uh, it, it, he had the right, as all judges do in these cases, to uh, approve or disprove the, disapprove of the questions that various attorneys wanted to ask. Um, he did permit the lawyers to ask the jury pool whether they thought the Confederate flag and the old state of Georgia flag were racist symbols. Um, and, and that could be terribly important moving forward because one of the things that the prosecution wants to do in this case is to introduce as evidence a vanity plate that Travis McMichael had uh, for his car, which uh, displayed the old uh, state flag, which, of course, was the Confederate battle flag. Um, so it, it, I ask this, though, for, a, a more, for maybe a more pertinent reason. This is a trial in which race is at the heart of everything that happens. Yes? Absolutely. I mean, this is, it could not be more clear that these men hunted down a black man um, and shot and killed him in broad daylight on the street. So, you know, as, as I was thinking about what we'd be talking about today and, and looked at, like, what is the stand your ground? What was the law, right? Um, thankfully, it's been repealed. But when I read it, I see nothing that says that you can shoot someone. So as a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable um, and probable cause of suspicion. So, suspicion. so nothing says you can shoot him. Nothing says you can have a gun. Nothing says... I mean, there's nothing that justifies hunting down a person who is just simply jogging around a mere suspicion of, you know, he's breaking in all of the houses. No evidence. There's nothing to even suggest and no evidence has come up that any house is broken into the day that they murdered him in broad daylight. And so, yes, this is absolutely about race. It preceded um, what the whole world saw with um, George Floyd being murdered on in broad daylight being videoed. Right. So. The value of all life and, and, you know, the question becomes continues to be whether or not what is the value of a black life. Right. Just plain and simple. And when, what, what does the system do in order to protect or cover for people who literally are committing these racist acts? And the district attorney is going to be looking at charges herself because of her participation in trying to, like, cover this up. This is absolutely about race. This is absolutely about the value of black lives in America. 
and the whole world is watching. They can pull people from another country and still have a challenge trying to get a jury pool in this case because it went so far and wide because it is so glaringly racist. And yes, a Confederate flag means a lot in this country. People who still, you know, tout those symbols, it speaks to a mindset. It speaks to, you know, a view and a, a thought around pe black people being less than in this country. And we are all humans and all have the same values. So, uh, Riley, this question of race did cut both ways with Judge Wamsley. Uh, so I, I want to point out that um, he did reject uh, the prosecution's questions. They wanted to ask uh, potential jurors whether those who oppose Black Lives Matter are racist and whether anyone believed Arbery shooting highlighted racism in their community. So the judge is walking a fine line on these questions, Riley. Well, he's absolutely walking a fine line because who and what determines what is a question that you can ask about race? That, that's such a huge theme that is coming in this trial. And, and I think it's part of why um, there, there's so much attention on this trial, too. And then this very small corner of South Georgia is seeing this. And in terms of finding a juror, there's one in 85 Glynn County residents got summoned for this case, one in 85. And out of that, do you think there's uh, how many do you think has not seen the video or has not have preconceived notions on this case, right? It, it, you're not going to find someone. So it comes down to how do you find jurors that will look at the evidence and, you know, make it an, an unbiased and uninfluenced decision. And with Judge Wansley kind of picking and choosing what questions about race, he has to be very, very, very careful. Um, Riley, I looked yesterday, Court TV is carrying the proceedings, but yesterday when I tried to find Court TV's, the, the questioning of jurors, it's not there. Are, are those, it, it, am I just not looking properly or, or is that not being televised, the questioning of jurors? So there has been a lot of confusion around media access to this case. Um, right. There, you know, there has been court TV is said to be the pool and be streaming constantly. And then um, there, there's been some, you know, they had some issues on their end that they cut the stream because they were confused about what they could be televising. And, and I think that it's kind of indicative of this larger issue, right? You know, you can't cut out the media. This is a public trial, um, but there's, hesitation in in Brunswick there's hesitation on the side of the judge of fueling the fire a little bit right um so uh, there there's just been because I'm just as confused as you are Bill and I think it's something that's only going to be worked out through the trial because there are also very very strict COVID restrictions right there's only a very few amount of media that can be allowed in the actual I think just the overflow room um so just trying to figure out how and what we're going to see of this case it's going to be an ongoing issue Eric, I ask that question because it does feel as though transparency is crucial in this case, given how explosive it is, how important it is, uh, certainly to people in the state, to people down in the Brunswick area. One of the things that was really important about the, the Derek Chauvin uh, trial was that we got to see everything unfolding, and, and, and so people for themselves could see how we were dealing with a very, very difficult racial uh, issue in that trial. And, and there is some concern as to how much transparency we're going to see when they sort out all these problems of what's going to be televised, what's not, uh, the limited pool that gets to go into the courtroom. Eric, your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, I, I totally uh, agree with, with your point. I think transparency is going to be key. I mean, I understand we have to look out for the public health aspects of this, but I think uh, the more the public can uh, see what's going on, the better, just given the sensitivity of this entire case. Um, Tamar, uh, we're going to watch this continue to unfold, but as we look to see today, whether they impanel anyone or not, um, there is at least one defense attorney who has, has said in an interview, I have absolutely no uh, uh, confidence that we will ever get a jury impaneled in, uh, in Brunswick. There's going to have to be a change of venue. But as somebody, on, I can't remember which of you did this, pointed out, I'm not sure there's anywhere you can go in the state of Georgia where people haven't, don't know everything they think they need to know about the case. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, I believe, two years since all of this happened, maybe maybe a little bit less. And so there's been so much time um, for this story to resonate across the country. And so you're right, it'll be very, very difficult for, for this to happen. All right, we're going to keep our eye on that case and, uh, and keep talking about it as it moves forward in uh, the week's ahead. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way? And when we come back, we got some uh, polit- some political news about the elections to discuss with our panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Eric Tanblatt, um, if you uh, read, as I do, uh, uh, press releases and uh, uh, other information coming from uh, Georgia Democrats, uh, they are not going to let go of this controversy that sprung up when Herschel Walker was heading to a fundraiser down in Texas at the home of a woman who it was discovered used as the image on her uh, Twitter uh, a, sir, a syringes. She's an anti-vaxxer uh, in the shape of a swastika. Uh, Walker did not attend that fundraiser. There were questions as to whether his campaign responded firmly enough at first about this, kind of brushed off the fact that it was a symbol of hatred. They eventually came around. But Democrats want to continue uh, making it an issue, Eric. Uh, what do you say about that? Well, look, I mean, this is politics in terms of what the Democrats are trying to do. I think Herschel Walker and his campaign responded appropriately, and he backed out of the fundraiser. And my sense is that had he known that before the fundraiser was scheduled, he probably would not uh, have scheduled the fundraiser. And I mean, I I don't uh, look, I, I get that, you know, this is politics and any opportunity you have to blast your opponent. I think that it demonstrates, though, that the Democrats do see uh, him as a formidable candidate and, you know, anything they can do to, you know, damage his candidacy. But I I think the campaign responded appropriately. Uh, Mayor Ingram, I think what uh, the the, uh, ammunition Democrats are using in all of this is the fact that the initial response from the Walker campaign was that the this was not an anti-Semitic statement. It was an anti-vaccine statement. So they did initially not kind of had a blind spot about the implications of a swastika. They then recovered. But I think that's why it's not quite it's not a dead issue at this point, Mayor. 
Yeah, you absolutely can't unring the bell. And I mean, to focus on syringes in the midst of a swastika, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to um, the question really is, if it had not become public, if people had not found out about it, would he have actually shown up? And I believe he would have. Um, I think, you know, in this very heightened time of racial um, tension, unrest, this racial um, systemic inequities that at minimum, especially a black man in America, should be able to be aware of and have people on his camp who are aware of the sensitivities and how, you know, you have to be very careful about who and what you associate yourself with. I mean, it's like not, it's a no brainer that if a person has that, I mean, what that is reminiscent of. And as a black man in America, in a country where we, you know, it's been 400 years since slavery, but we're still dealing with systemic racism and systemic oppression and structural racism that he should be aware of that. So I asked myself, like, I mean, does he even have a clue um, about who he is in America, what that means to be black in America and all of the injustices and all of the black men who have died at the hands of police just within the last year, like where is his, I mean, who is he really? And does he really have any level of sensitivity to the community that not only he's a part of, he can't get out of, he's black in America, he can't change that. So with that, you know, oppressed people shouldn't oppress people and oppressed people should be, um, you know, aware of what those symbols mean and, and, and stand up against them and not try to be like, oh, my bad, it's syringes or, you know, playing this wordsmithing or, or trying to dice this up when it's clear. I agree with Eric in that this is politics. Democrats are going to take any opening that they can to hit Herschel Walker, um, especially given his uh, significant fundraising numbers uh, recently. I expect this to be a non-issue in a couple days. We're still talking about the Republican primary. We're nowhere near talking about a, a general election. Um, what I think could be more damaging to Herschel Walker right now as he tries to appeal to the Republican base uh, is these uh, attacks from people like Gary Black about his stance on immigration and kind of a significant break from uh, Donald Trump and you know him wanting to deport some 11 million undocumented immigrants. Um, I think that's where the you know Herschel Walker's team should be sweating right now, at least in the the short run leading up to the Republican primary. Uh, you know, I th I'm glad you um, moved to that because that is the other uh, issue about Herschel Walker I thought was worth talking about uh, on the show, uh, Riley. Uh, so the the point is that um, Herschel Walker back in, I think, 2015, essentially, he'd already said he was supporting uh, Donald Trump for president, <clears throat> but he also uh, did, in fact, back then say, yes, I like the Trump wall. We should build a wall. But he also said that he believed there should be some sort of pathway to citizenship for millions of people who are in the country illegally. And Gary Black has now jumped on that aggressively. He's released a uh, one-minute commercial attacking Walker over that. So uh, it, it is interesting. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the Trump base responds to just that. Well, I think it brings up the question that is the longtime question of politics is how impactful is something that you said years ago, right? But Herschel Walker is in a unique situation where he has aligned himself so closely with Trump 
that I think this would might have a bigger impact on him um, than it might have on someone else. But to see Gary Black, it really does give Gary Black and other um, other Republican candidates a lot of fire. And I think it's especially interesting for Gary Black since he is agriculture commissioner and uh, Georgia Ag relies so much on the H-2A visa program um, with uh, immigrants that come over on the specific visa. Um, but it really does show that immigration, you know, as we saw with Kemp a couple weeks ago and his issues with, on that issue, that um, it, it could hit Herschel Walker, I think, harder than he might expect it to. Okay, but Eric, it's interesting. Uh, you, you, you know, I think Riley's right. He made this statement back in 2015. Yet, but yesterday, the Walker campaign uh, did not, in in responding in the statement they put out about this, did not in fact distance Walker from those comments back in 2015 about a pathway to citizenship. Instead, they highlighted uh, securing the border, preventing the humanitarian and illegal immigration crisis. It's growing uh, down there. So, Eric, I have a different take on on this to some extent. Walker, and we've mentioned this on the show before, Walker is secure in the knowledge that he has Donald Trump's endorsement um, and that it is likely that at some point Trump will be here to campaign on his behalf, we imagine. And, and, and yet he is also positioning himself, because he's secure in that, he is able to take somewhat more moderate positions on issues that position him maybe better in a general election campaign down the road, including what's happening here with these old statements about a pathway to citizenship. Well, look, you know, just because he has Donald Trump's endorsement doesn't mean that he has to walk lockstep uh, and agree with every single thing. Well, wait that, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Every other Republican candidate does. Why should, uh, I mean, let, let's face well, it, that's the Republicans not, that's are all not, walking. In. That's, well, that's not That's not true. There are some that I think are demonstrating some uh, sense of courage and are willing to uh, break away from the former president. The former president is clearly a supporter of Herschel Walker's. You may, you may very well be right, but uh, you, you know, sometimes people's positions evolve. I'm not saying his position has changed and the fact that they didn't denounce his position immediately. But look, we're in the middle of a Republican primary. Herschel Walker is clearly the front runner. He's raised a ton of money and the competitors running against him are going to look for opportunities to break through. Gary Black has now demonstrated this isn't the first time that he's going to he's prepared to be very aggressive. And they're going to need to find things like this to break through, especially when you're running against someone who has such high name ID and is very well financed. Mayor? Yeah, I I think it takes a little bit more than being a black man who's a Republican who has the support of Trump to be a formidable candidate. Right. I think those are are very low um, thresholds and. You know, it's just optics. Senator Warnock is a black male, so we put another black male on the other side of the ticket, and that's going to help. I mean, I, I don't really understand. Um, yeah, people, everybody's raising money. The, the article talked about, you know, yes, um, Senator Warnock has raised $9.5 million in the last 90 days, and Herschel Walker was around $3.5 million, right? Um, there's still that gap in fundraising, and maybe it was a shorter period of time, but the reality of it is, is that it is still so unfortunate that the former president is the um, benchmark or the standard for any party, 
um, a person who was so inhumane, a person whose views and whose policies are so extreme, a person who, you know, has been a major threat to democracy that we're still talking about his level of influence within a party where I don't believe all Republicans are that way or at that extreme. And well, I think we saw that in the last election. Mayor, let me let me jump in because a couple things about this. Um, number one, I think um, Herschel Walker, the greatest football star at the University of Georgia, has a lot to do with why he is so enormously uh, popular right now. And I do think it's a, a little unfair to suggest that um, Republicans are putting him up solely on the basis of his race. They, I mean, clearly his stature as one of the great football players of his generation has some impact on this as well. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I would say that that is stereotypical of black people it can only be sports athletes, right? So, yeah, he was a great sports athlete. That doesn't mean he's going to be a good elected official or is able to do policy. Yeah, right. fair enough, fair enough. Um, uh, but, Riley, I want to go back to this uh, because I, I think, again, I think – Herschel Walker is charting a path here. He, in his one big appearance uh, in down in Perry, when the president, when the former president came down there for the rally, Walker was very careful to steer clear of talking about a stolen election and to pick up on any of the hot button issues Trump is so engaged in. So I do think he is charting a very different course. That might serve him well, assuming he wins the primary, and that's still up in the air, uh, to maybe attract some of the independent voters that uh, Democrats are so hoping uh, will be uh, in their column again. Well, I don't think it's just independent voters. I think it's Republicans that they're worried about not coming out to the polls, right? You know, we're going to have Republican candidates, and it's going to be a really interesting Thing to watch how they navigate this, you know, the, the misinformation thread that runs under the party. Um, and, and I think Herschel Walker, you know, he is, he is being careful. Um, if you have, if you're working a rally with Trump and the former president and he's spouting out all these things, do you really want to reinforce them? The audience has already heard them. Do you want to tie yourself to these ideas too? Um, it's going, definitely going to be an, it's interesting to see how candidates walk that line in the next election. Um, meanwhile, uh, Tamar, uh, we've gotten the news this week that uh, Raphael Warnock has had an extraordinary fundraising period, uh, raised $9.5 million over the last 90 days. So he continues to show that he is going to be a formidable candidate for Republicans, whether it's Herschel Walker, Gary Black, Latham Sadler, Kelvin King, whoever it may be. Uh, it's clear Raphael Warnock, who is also establishing himself as a real leader on some of the progressive issues in the Senate, he's going to be very tough uh, uh, to uh, beat in the general tomorrow. I cannot emphasize what a staggering amount of money $9.3 million <laughs> is. Um, usually a million dollars a quarter is pretty darn good for a for a sitting senator. Um and so 9.3 million is insane. Um, money isn't everything. And there's going to be a lot out of Warnock's hands that he will not be able to, able to control. Um, the, the national mood in terms of where the politics are in November 2022, what people think of Joe Biden um, and his performance at that moment in time, the state of the coronavirus. So 
I think he's kind of preparing for that possibility and the money will certainly help um, at, at the end of the day, but it's also, it's not everything. Um, one point I do want to make just kind of building off what we were saying about Herschel Walker. He is in a very unique position in the Republican party right now that pretty much no one else um, has, you know, he has this affection uh, from Donald Trump that he's built after decades of friendship. And that gives him a little bit more freedom um, to, to kind of carefully carve his own path. At the same time, he has immense affection from a lot of UGA fans around the entire state. And so I think that does give him more freedom in a way that most other Republican candidates do not. Um, it kind of reminds me almost of Johnny Isaacson in, in the fact that he had his own reputation that he could rest on and that gave him a little bit of freedom from, from Donald Trump. At the same time, immigration was the motivating issue for Trump supporters, and he has to be very careful not to alienate those people. At the same time, there are plenty of mainstream Republicans and independent voters who did not like what Trump was saying about immigration. So that's going to be a tough line to walk, especially as he gets increasingly desperate Republican opponents who are going to want to use any opening to hit him. Um, but right now, maybe this stance is going to work. Eric, how, how close to being over with. I, I know this is, I'm, I'm making a more dramatic statement than I probably should, but is Herschel Walker the prohibitive nominee of the Republican Party? Well, no, I think he's the front runner right now, but as you know, he's never run for office before. And, you know, all it takes is, you know, a stumble or two, and depending on the severity of the stumble, you know, you could have an opening where another candidate can emerge. And, you know, we've talked about Gary Black, but, you know, one of the other candidates that I don't think we should lose sight of is Latham Sadler, who had another mm -hmm. good fundraising. In fact, he's raised more money than Gary Black has and has a, yeah. you know, distinguished, uh, you know, background in the in the military and service. So um, I don't think this is over uh, by far. I mean, we still have many months to go before the primary. The Senate race, the Senate primary isn't over, but today's political rewind is. We're out of time for uh, today's show. But Eric Tannenblatt, always enjoy having you on with us. Thank you so much. Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram of East Point, thank you. And come back again when we uh, have an opportunity to put you on the show. Riley Bunch. We are looking forward to your coverage of the trial. Tamar Hallerman, I always look forward to seeing you on Tuesdays and reading you in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That's it for us today. We're back with a brand new show again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Um, wear your mask when you go inside and you're around a lot of people. And go out and get a flu shot. It's right down the street at your neighborhood drugstore. See you all tomorrow.